It's time for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, and Josh Gregory. Welcome to another episode of the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group, where every week we're helping you take your next wise step in your financial life. Thanks for being here, friends. My name is Mike Bernard. I'm your host. I'm also one of the CFPs on the program. With me in the KFG studios, no Kevin Corhorn today, but along my side is Josh Gregory, CFP, and uh, one of the business partners I have at KFG. Yeah. Glad to be with you, Mike. Yeah. Well, what's the best way to invest money that you'll need in just a couple years? This current investment world that we're in has created a dilemma on deciding do you go for safety of principle or do you actually try to get a rate of return with some of this safer, shorter money? And we're going to share our perspective and answer questions from fans of the show in this hour of Wise Money. Yeah, the hope here is this hour we're going to be tackling a whole bunch of questions, a big variety. We're starting with a question from Chris, a fan of the show. If you have a question, love to hear from you. You can call or text us 574-222-2000. That's 574-222-2000. Online, you can submit questions there as well. Search the Wise Money Show. Actually, wisemoneyshow.com. It's right there. Um, and then all of our social media, many questions come on the YouTube channel, sometimes on Facebook, whatever. But search the Wise Money Show and follow us there. All right. So the headliner topic, like I mentioned, is a question from fan of the show, Chris. We appreciate the question. He submitted it on the website, went to wisemoneyshow.com, submitted it right there. Here's what he said. Is there a short-term investment you recommend for half of a house settlement through a divorce? Need time to decide what the future holds? Great. Yeah, great question. So we'll answer this question directly, but I think many people are finding themselves in a similar scenario, not with the divorce piece, but listen, I've got some money. I don't need it now. I might need it soon. Mm -hmm. What do I do? Yeah. Well, and just the fact that Chris is choosing to pause long enough to just say, you know what, I don't want to race into any financial decisions. A lot of times, if it's after some like major life transition, you just want to kind of take control back and make some action so that you can feel like, okay, I am, I, I'm in the driver's seat in my life at a time when maybe it hasn't felt like that recently. And um, to just pause and give yourself some time to kind of gather uh, your, your perspective a little bit, understand the lay of the land now in this new world, I think is really wise. That could be after losing a spouse. It could be after a divorce, as Chris has said, or some other major change. Maybe you lost a job. And um, you need to have resources, and you don't yet know what the game plan is. That is a time where you're kind of in limbo, but hopefully not passively in limbo, not just waiting for things to happen, but actively trying to uh, begin to adjust your plans and, and everything. During an environment like that, when you have money that is short-term in nature, and, and I would define that as money that might need to get used inside of a year or two, even three years. Yep. Um, the the key is to not like suddenly put all that money at risk or tie it up and make it illiquid for you. Right now, at a stage in life where you're trying to pick your next path, uh, flexibility, having options is the key. And so right out of the gate, the, the first thing that we would be talking about is just what's going to give you flexibility on liquidity. What are you going to be able to access uh, when you need to? 
what's going to not um, get yourself painted into a corner. So any any product that um, or, or financial tool that's locking you in for some set period of time that doesn't match uh, your time frame, I think could be a risk. Yeah. I, so Josh and I, so all the, all the shows are organic, like there's nothing scripted here. And so Josh was uh, rambling about whatever, and he could tell he could tell that I wasn't I was, really. I was paying buying attention. you time to like get your head screwed on straight. <laughs> Thank My you. goodness, really appreciated that. I was looking for a chart here because I can explain this chart really well over the radio. Uh, no, I won't be able to. But what makes what? Why are more people than just Chris facing this sort of struggle? And and I, there's always the temptation to say, well, I've got some money. I don't need it now. Can I invest it and get some quick return? But yeah. I feel like the circumstances make this an even more dangerous and tricky choice right now simply because, and I'm looking at a chart that goes back to 1994, okay? And it shows the amount of interest that you need to beat inflation and the average interest rate on a savings account. And there is a marked difference a marked difference once all the QE started, once the quantitative easing, once the stimulus started. And I'm not talking about from the pandemic. I'm talking about 2008. Up until that time, mid-90s, all the way till 1990, uh, or excuse me, 2008, you were earning enough interest to at least meet inflation in most years, uh, double it up. Yeah. And since 2008, we're not even close. And right now, guys, I'm looking at the chart on a $100,000 savings account. You need to be earning $4,000 a year to be inflation, and you currently are earning about 70 bucks. Is that crazy or what? So if you're not talking, I mean, if, if you don't look at this and say, hey, Chris, I feel you, man, I feel you, then you're just not looking at these numbers because we all are tempted to say, gosh, I got this money sitting here. What do I do with it? Right. And so now another chart, and this is earlier in my slide deck that I'm looking at. I'm not going to be able to get there. Josh, unless you want to buy me some time, um, <laughs> is a, is a, a few measures of where the stock market is on a relative basis, um, whether it's expensive or cheap. Yeah, okay, and yeah. Josh, you know this chart as oh, yeah. the as the forward PE ratio, and we're at second highest levels ever. In fact, if you then say, okay, well, at these levels, where does history say the stock market, but the performance will be over the next twelve months? It's totally random. But what does history say where the stock market uh, performance will be on average per year over five years, N based on history? I'm not saying this is. You know, everything is very different right now. It is very weird. We've never had this much money printed and blah, 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 okay? Uh, I haven't dealt with the pandemic in, you know, a century, right? So it's very different. But based on a historical perspective, we shouldn't be surprised if the stock market is back to where it is right now, five years from now. We shouldn't be surprised. If you five said years from back now, to where well, it is. Well, yeah, okay. So if implying that it, it falls and then recovers in that time period. So there's a Freudian slip, I think is what they call it. Or goes that, flat. Could go flat. Or goes higher and Could, then comes back down. Exactly. Right. So we shouldn't be surprised if that's what happens. Okay. So there again, I think if you need, if you don't need money now, but you're going to need it soon, this is a very tricky time because you're going to get clobbered with inflation. You're not going to be able to keep up with it, yep. with it just sitting in the bank. And 
it, you would argue it's an extremely risky time in the stock market because of these elevated valuations. And yet that is, um, unfortunately, the decision that a lot of people are making, right? That, uh, well, I'm not making anything if the cash sits there in the bank account. You are being punished for being a saver right now because of yeah. inflation. Life's getting more expensive. Everything's going up in cost while your dollars just sit there idle, barely earning anything that's noticeable. 70 bucks a year on a hundred grand. That's right. That let that sink in just a little bit. Yeah. As opposed to uh, back in 1994, so that's what 27 years ago, something like that. Um, it, it could have been four grand. And so, so times are not the same as they once were. And so what it's doing is it's luring a lot of people into taking more risk, buying into what has felt like the only game in town for a long time, and that is the stock market, whether it's buying mutual funds, buying individual stocks, or there's even a whole new generation that's starting to dabble in options trading uh, as we got well. A, we got a question we're going to be hitting hitting in just a second. I, I, want to, I want to take this question, though, a little bit further. I mean, so, so Josh, I'm just going to give you a clue what I'm thinking. What are the top three things you'd consider on short money? What are, what are the top three things that you'd consider? And then, um, okay, so what, uh, what flexibility should you have? What are the thoughts, considerations? So we're going to dive into all that and then hit additional questions from fans of the show. So we got that and more coming up on the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. What do you do with short-term money? These days, you know, you're getting clobbered with it with the inflation. You're earning no interest. Stock market's been running up. What do you do? You don't need the money right now. You'll need it in a couple of years. What do you do? We're going to share our top three ideas with you right now. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard. With me in the KFG studios, Joshua Gregory. Every episode of the Wise Money Show is on the YouTube channel. Go check it out. Go to YouTube, search the Wise Money Show, and subscribe to it there. Lots of content that we drop all throughout the week, not just these full one-hour talk shows. Lots of content all throughout the week, so go check it out. All right, so still tackling Chris's question about, hey, I've got some short-term money. I don't need it right now, but I might need it in a couple of years. What should I do? Talking about why this is such an interesting uh, and challenging question right now, but you know, brass tacks, Josh, let's get to it. Like, wh so what do you do? I'm just going to qualify this, just the full disclaimer. This is not advice. And the best idea comes in the context of your overall financial plan, because maybe the best idea is for you to pay down debt. Maybe the best right. idea is for you to uh, increase your 401k contribution. So you're maxing them out. And then you live on some of this money. Maybe the best idea for you is to fund Roth IRAs because you can pull that money back out. You can pull your basis back out, blah, blah, blah. There's all sorts of ideas when you look at this from a comprehensive financial planning perspective. And you know that's how we want you to be thinking of it, right? Yeah. That this is not a decision on, hey, give me a tip on what's the best bank account out there that will pay me 0 0.05 instead of 0.04%. Right. That would be awesome. Yeah. Please, I'm, I'm waiting. No, I, the, the safe money that you need to hold in preservation its main purpose is to still be there when you need it a year from now or two years from now. Now, if if you are really keyed up on inflation right now, you would argue, well, if I put it in the bank, it's not going to be there when I need it because it's eroding every single day. And that is the dilemma right now. Yep. And if you let the inflation tail wag the dog too much, what you would be 
almost forcing yourself into is saying, I have to go earn a better rate of return than inflation. Otherwise, I'm losing ground and I, I don't want that. Um, but recognize that anything above cash, anything above a savings account or a really short-term CD or even a treasury bill, anything above that is bringing new risk as you invest it. I mean, right. right? So the number one idea is to find the highest interest FDIC insured account that you can. I mean, that, that's, that is still the best idea. Now that's not the one that's going to get a bunch of ratings, Right. On the radio right. or, or on, on YouTube podcast. But listen, that's still, you've got to look at this in the context of your overall financial life and your comprehensive financial plan. But likely that's the number one idea. And for so for us, you typically find that I, I, there's three rules when it comes to these emergency funds or the short-term money. It's got to be FDIC insured. Okay. Um, it's got to be free. Don't pay someone to hold your money, especially when you're getting nothing in rate of return. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be liquid, okay? And so that typically le- – and then after that, give me the highest interest rate out there that you can find. And I still use Capital One uh, Bank. There's there's Marcus from Goldman Sachs. That's gains, uh, that's gaining a lot of uh, of attention. And so – but they're paying what, like 0.5%? I mean, not, point nothing. It's, right, it's not even right. worth mentioning. And like you said – it's not even enough to keep up with the inflation. Yep. So every dollar that's sitting in the bank account, just recognize and know this, the, the value of it, the spending power of it is moving away from you. It's declining, in other words, as, as time goes on because of inflation. Um, I, I like, though, uh, one of the, the things that you had shared about financial planning, more unorthodox approaches to putting this money to use in a way that is financially productive to you, something that's going to give you some kind of an economic gain. And it could be paying down some debt. Mm-hmm. But if you pay down debt, that does not meet the description usually of staying liquid and not tying up the money, right? Yeah, because yeah. if you pay down some money on your house, the only way to get that money back out of the house is to sell it, sell the house, or borrow it back against a home equity line or something like that. But that might be a strategy in an environment like this. If you've built up some equity in your home and you have the ability to put a home equity line in place, maybe you already have one. Maybe you're already carrying a balance on that home equity line. The beauty of paying down a home equity line is that as you pay it down, you could always borrow it back if you need to at least until the term is up, the, the period of yeah. time that allows you to go utilize the, the, the credit limits and everything. But by at least not carrying um, a balance or carrying a smaller balance, you're saving yourself that amount of interest. And a lot of people have a home equity line that's charging them 4 4.5% right now. Yeah. So if you could go earn 4 4.5% by essentially saving that interest, no longer sending it off to a bank... That's that's as good as a rate of return, essentially. And that's getting closer to maybe keeping up with some of the core inflation that's happening right now. And if you can also, and again, you've got to evaluate this in the context of your comprehensive financial plan, but if you can also save some taxes, that's a way of getting a return on this money as well. So to me, if I'm gonna, if I'm just gonna share them with you, I mean, number one, you've got to consider an online money market account, like I already talked about. I mean, that that's number one. Or number, savings account, or either savings one. Account. Yeah. Uh, number two is if you want to go up the risk ladder just a little bit, you could consider a short-term bond index or short-term bond mutual fund. You might be able to earn 
two percent. Now it's not going to have that guarantee with it, but it can fluctuate in value in the short term. But and and boy, we've got the Fed tapering right now. The last time they did that, there was a taper tantrum, and interest rates Mm -hmm. took us, you know, skyrocketed within a couple of months. So it's risky with that. But you step onto the risk, you step off the risk-free platform, you go onto risky, and you might be able to earn a little bit more return. You're not taking a wild amount of risk. And then the third idea, though, and this would really depend on how likely is it that you're going to need the money in these next few years, is if you say, well, I could go up the risk level a little bit more to try to get a little bit more return. Um, There's some hedged or buffered exchange-traded funds that you might want to maybe consider, but they're very complicated. Uh, those are the three ideas. I yeah, and I mean, there's other ideas as well that if you're willing to go study, you're willing to, you know, put in some some serious learning and and maybe even have a more active uh, role involved. That might be one of them if you can research some of those um, kind of special tools like the um, exchange traded funds that are coming out. Uh, there have been times in the past where we've utilized a a strategy to purchase callable municipal bonds. Yep. That one is one that is that that's like moving up the food chain on complexity and workload involved, right? Yeah. And you have to take into consideration the value of your time. Cuz if you spend a whole bunch of time and energy and it's taking you away from the life you're trying to live just so you can eke out a little tiny bit better rate of return, you got to ask yourself, "Boy, is this is this worth it?" Yep. Or am I actually better going and building skills that are marketable out there that I can actually turn into additional income for the family. Does, sort the, of thing. does the size of the account, does the amount of money matter? Should that influence what options you consider? If someone other than Chris, or I would, Chris didn't even tell us how much money he's talking about here, but does the amount of money matter? I feel like it could. I mean, the, there are some folks who will open up accounts directly with the treasury and purchase T-bills, essentially. Yeah. Um, some Again, sometimes, depends on what's happening with interest rates from day to day, week to week. Sometimes you can get a little bit better rate of return that way. But again, to do all that work, it probably needs to be a sizable enough yeah. pool of money to justify. We're definitely going to be talking about I-bonds coming up, inflation-protected bonds. I mean, not not on this episode, but coming up soon, either on a on a, a next why step video on the YouTube channel or interviews or whatever on the radio and certainly for a discussion for an upcoming wise money show because those are interest protected in a way and the interest that they're paying the real interest is actually it's actually there as opposed to negative which is what most interest bearing accounts are receiving so we've got uh, additional questions from fans of the show a lot we're going to get into that and more coming up on the wise money show with Corhorn Financial Group This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. What are the income limits when funding or trying to fund a Roth IRA? And there are income limits on both sides. We're going to talk about those right now. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard. With me in the KFG studios, no Kevin Corhorn today, but along next to me is Joshua Gregory. If you have any questions for the show, we'd love to hear from you. Stay up to date on Wise Money content. Submit questions online, wisemoneyshow.com, and then all over social media, wherever you're at, we are there as well. Search the Wise Money Show. All right, transitioning next question here from the YouTube channel. I have a question, question mark. 
Thank you. Thank you. If I lost my job. What is happening? I don't know. If I lost my job and have no earned income for this year, but I've been trading stocks and stock options and I've made money, capital gains, can I contribute to a Roth IRA? Boy, that that story is becoming more and more common, isn't it? I mean, I mean there's it, entire like YouTube channels on oh, how how to that's trade. You, YouTube was created for that oh, for the okay. most part. Like that's exactly <laughs> Yes. I thought it was to show you how to unclog your drains. Oh well, yeah, that too. That's that's what I'll be YouTubing tonight, actually. <laughs> In case you're wondering. Sorry, kids. <laughs> Dad had to rush off to work. All right, here we go. So what's what are the income limits? What are the income limits with funding a Roth IRA? So does capital gains, does that qualify you to contribute to a Roth? That's a simple question. Well, so I was going to frame it as what type of income allows you to even be eligible. And because you kind of answered the the question here, uh, I have no earned income. And earned income is the magic phrase when you're trying to decide, can you fund an IRA or a Roth IRA or really any type of retirement uh, account? And earned income is, it's like paycheck money. So do you have a job where you are going to receive a W-2 at the end of the year you're, you're working for a paycheck every week or two or whatever. Or it could be maybe you have a side hustle, not trading stocks, though, or trading options, a side hustle that results in self-employment. So if you, you would know this if this applies to you because you would be filing something called a Schedule C, which is basically where you record all the revenues you collected, subtract all the expenses, and what's your profit from this side business that you're doing. Well, that profit is treated as earned income in most circumstances. Unfortunately, when you're trading stocks, um, unless it, I don't know, maybe if it was like your actual job or something, some people will flip houses and uh, it it can be passive. Other times it's earned income. But the the point here, though, is most likely you're not going to be eligible to contribute to a Roth IRA. If you already have money in a traditional IRA, though, maybe this is a year where you've got a little bit less income, you're in a lower tax bracket, and this could be a scenario where you actually seriously consider doing a Roth conversion, which is the second way that you can get money into a Roth. It's moving IRA dollars to a Roth, but you pay tax in between. The nice thing is you pay tax based on what's this year's tax bracket that you're in. And it's possible that this is one of those years where you happen to be in a lower bracket. And you use the cash that you were thinking, well, I'm going to contribute this to the Roth. Use that cash to pay the tax instead. And now you've moved, say, 10 grand from your IRA and you've got 10 grand in your Roth. and You cover the taxes out of that cash you had. Um, Technically, the contribution limit for the Roth IRA and same with traditional IRA, but let's let's focus on the Roth. Okay, I- ignore the traditional. What I said, um, your contribution limit is is a hundred percent of your earned income, up to six grand, up to six grand. And if you're experienced in life, meaning you're age fifty or old, older, you can do an <laughs> extra thousand. Okay, so but the limit is still a hundred percent of what you make, up to. Six grand. Okay. Now, just because you baited me there, let's talk about the income limit on the other side. I've done some uh, shows and had some discussions on the Roth contribution limits if you make too much money. Okay. If you're a single filer or uh, file head of household, your adjusted gross income 
can't be above 125,000. If it is, you start losing the ability to contribute to the Roth. And then if your income is even more than that, you can't do it at all. Okay. If you're married, that income limit instead of 125 is around 198 where you start losing the ability to contribute the maximum amount, and then it goes away completely. So there's income limits on both sides. And I've done several videos recently and done some radio interviews about this because I've just had several instances come up where someone's just funding the Roth and they don't realize, oh, I was working and now I'm on unemployment and I just kept funding the Roth. Oh mm -hmm. yeah, can't can't do that. Oh, I was funding my Roth, and all of a sudden we've gotten some promotions, and and uh, spouses working, and got a bonus, and my income's going to be higher this year. Y yeah, you can't you can't fund the Roth. So uh, unless it's in a year where you had already built up at least six grand of of earnings earlier yeah, in yeah, the yeah. year, right? Yeah. So yeah. don't don't hear what Mike just said and said, hey, I just lost my job, and now I can no longer contribute. Maybe you earned enough in the earlier months of the year to be able to still pull it off. Yep. All right. Great question. Appreciate that. Uh, all right. Next question from Fred on the YouTube channel as well. Let's say I got a share of an inheritance of property. Let's say a check for around 100000 And that puts my wife and I over the income-related uh, monthly adjustment amount. Wow, okay. So that's, that's Irma. And that is 176000 of of married filing jointly on your income tax. Would that increase my Medicare for just one year or would it be for the rest of my life? I realize that you don't know all the particulars, but just roughly speaking. Okay. So let's kind of unpack some things here and kind of level the playing field because uh, what Fred is referring to, we, we can discern a few things. Fred is at least age 65 because he's on Medicare. And um, what a lot of people don't realize until they're actually on Medicare is that you you get part A for free, you pay for part B on a monthly basis. In 2021, it was, what, $148-ish. Yeah, okay. Um so, so that comes out of your Social Security check every single month. You're paying for that. And what, what a lot of people don't realize, though, is that if your income goes too high, they'll start charging you more. For the same thing. Same thing. It's not like you get a better policy. No, you're going to just pay more of the, the load, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And it can move up in a hurry. Um, and correctly, uh, it's at about $176,000 of, of income that all of a sudden, I'll call it a penalty. You, yeah. you start getting penalized with higher uh, premium amounts that you have to pay. The question is, well, what is it that causes you to get higher in your income? Um it is all of your different sources of income, but the way that this was framed was, okay, I received a check for $100,000. We don't know enough details to know, well, what was the nature of that inheritance before it got turned into a check? Maybe it was a, a financial product that had never been taxed in the, the prior owner's uh, lifetime, and so now when it's being received, it's treated as income for Fred and, and his wife. We'll assume that he's right in, in that way. Um, however, uh, make sure that you've checked, right? Yeah. Make sure that you're really accurate and you know, is that 100000 actually going to be income? Right. And it, so he says inheritance of property, let's say a check for $100,000. I, I would read that as inherited a house, the house was sold, 
and it was divvied up, and I got a check for a hundred thousand. Yeah. Is that taxable income, Josh? It it wouldn't be. It wouldn't. Be. Uh, in most circumstances, it depends on how the house was owned. There's always the it depends, but this is why you need to be talking to the attorney that's helping to settle the estate, or if there's a CPA involved, they will be able to help you more definitively know is this taxable or isn't it. In just a minute, we're gonna get to the part of the question where he says, "Okay, I've, I'm above that limit. This Irma, this income-related monthly adjustment amount limit." Do I now have to pay this penalty, as Josh eloquently put it, for the rest of my life, or is it just a year, or, 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 is there a way I could avoid the penalty altogether? So we've got that question and more coming up on The Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Is there an exception if you cross over that limit and and uh, and have to start paying a penalty or a higher amount for your Medicare tax? Is there an exception that you can file? There actually is. We're going to talk about it right now. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard. With me in the KFG studios, Josh Gregory. Uh, every episode of the Wise Money Show is on podcast. Go check it out. If you listen to podcasts wherever you go, just search the Wise Money Show follow us or subscribe to us there, whatever, and rate the program. We appreciate that. Leave comments there. We, we appreciate that. All right. So we got a question here from, from Fred. And just to catch you up, he said, let's say I inherited some property or I get a check for 100000 And that puts my wife and I are, are above then that income-related monthly adjustment amount of 176000 when it comes to Medicare Part B and Part D. So now we have to pay a surcharge or a penalty or an additional amount for our Medicare Part B and Part D. Um, will I have to pay that for the rest of my life or is it just one year? Yeah, the good news is no, this isn't necessarily going to cause you to uh, jump in your price on Medicare Part B and D. Uh, it, it's just going to be a temporary one-time deal. And the reason is essentially what the government does is they look back a couple years at the tax return from two years ago to decide what your premium costs will be your share is for this year. So in 2022, it'll be based on your 2020 tax return. Mm -hmm. Am I correct in yep. that? Yeah. Um, and, and so if you have one particular year, maybe 2020 was some sort of an anomaly where you had this big spike in income or, or some major event, um, you might say, well, boy, I'm all of a sudden going to have to you know, pay, pay this additional premium. And I just didn't see this coming. A lot of people don't even realize it. In fact, the way they find out is two years after the fact, they get their letter at the beginning of the year saying, here's what your social security is going to be this year. And oh, by the way, here's what your Medicare premiums will be. And it just, you know, floors them. Well, what just happened here? Yeah. Well, it, we have to look back a couple years and see what was happening in your income. There is a way though to often appeal this number and try to get an exception. And it's essentially you saying, hey, this is not my new reality. This is not what life's going to look like moving forward. It was due to some major life-changing event. And I'm asking for this to be kind of brought back down to my n normal level. Don't penalize me. I would certainly make the argument personally that receiving an inheritance just one time uh, would be a type of an event that you ought to be able to get uh, appealed. Sometimes retirement and your income dropping significantly because you you know you're you're walking away from a paycheck. 
that could be an event. Maybe you sold the family farm and it was just a one-time year where you're paying a bunch of taxes with a bunch of income. You can appeal that. Sometimes they'll grant you uh, a reduction. Sometimes not. We've been successful at times helping clients with this. We've uh, fallen short at times too. I mean, for the exact same reason. There's no... Um, there's no consistency here. I, and I'm looking at the form. It's form SSA-44. That's not going to be on the quiz, uh, but that's what the form is. It's mo- Medicare Income Related Monthly Adjustment Amount Dash Life Changing Event. And when you look at this, and they even tell you, you can fill out this form or you can give them a the, the, the nice folks at the Social Security office a call and talk through this. I don't think that's going to get you very far personally. But um, type of life changing <laughs> event, I think each of these, they're they're basically – they're, they're trying to argue the opposite. Like, hey, your income was permanently high and now it's low. Tell us why. When in fact, most people use this form for, hey, my income's permanently low and it spiked high. Right. And so, yeah, these, these type of life chain events aren't very helpful. So um, it's really going to be a coin toss as to whether they grant you this appeal or this exception. You still got to go through it, though. I, I would definitely. Yeah, don't definitely just do skip it. the process, right? Yeah. So, all right. H- hope that helps. And, you know, this income-related monthly adjustment amount, that has got to be part of your planning. That has to be because your required minimum distribution impacts that. Your big withdrawal from an IRA to buy a car or to do a home improvement, that impacts that. So you just got to be very planful with it. So, all right. Uh, next question comes from a fan of the show, Aaron. Uh, on the Facebook page, he, he says, and and uh, the, Aaron, I'm just going to apologize right now. You uh, you wrote this when it was warm out and it's currently very cold out. So that's just <laughs> how long this thing has been sitting on the shelf. But they all go into a queue. And, and so here we go. Uh, he said, hey, love watching you guys every week. I'm studying for my CFP. And, and the show has been very helpful in that perspective. That's fantastic, Aaron. Good luck. All right. So here's what he says. My wife and I want to start investing in real estate and mainly, mainly looking to own some rental properties. We have a goal of being financially free someday, but just so nervous at getting started. We keep hearing uh, to try to not use any of our own money. So I guess we use a home equity line or the BRRR strategy, which Josh is going to walk us through in a second. Wondering if you guys could speak to these strategies. A little background on us. On us. We both have decent jobs. We make about 130000 a year. We have 80000 in college debt. We have twenty grand in savings and investments and around thirty grand in equity in our home. This is wise for us to do. We're still in the learning phase. I, I, I'm just going to commend you for that, Aaron. I mean, yeah. a lot of times people, you know, they're like, okay, well, is is there a really a full parachute in this backpack? I, I don't know. Let's go. You know, jump. <laughs> right. and, and so you being careful to walk through this and think through it, uh, love, love that approach. I agree. Um, the fact, though, that you are in the learning phase, I think, partially helps to answer the question, too, because you want to match what's my skill level with the strategy, and also, am I in a position where I can afford to take the this level of risk, ultimately, mm-hmm. okay? And certainly, you know, there are all kinds of YouTube videos out there that talk about the Burr method, B-R-R. RR approach. This is a rental real estate approach. It basically, if, you, if you've never heard of this before, it's where you buy a house that needs to be fixed up and, and you rehab it. That's the first R. And then you rent it out 
And after it's rented and it's collecting income, then you go refinance it to get your cash, any money that you've got in this deal back out, kind of leverage it back up. And um, after that, then you uh, basically go repeat, right? Keep doing it over and over until no one will lend you money anymore, (laughs) right? Or until you can't find houses or who, who knows. This is a tough environment, I would think. And I I don't do this personally, so maybe there's all kinds of bargains out there that I'm just personally not seeing. But in this type of a housing market, can you first of all buy it right? That seems to be you know part of the formula to doing well in real estate is you can't overpay for the real estate itself, especially not if you're going to maintain it for a long time and rent it out. Um, this, this approach though, it's different than flipping a house with flipping a house, you'd buy it, you'd rehab it, and then you just sell it instead of refinancing it and renting it and then refinancing it and doing it all over again. So to, to me, I listen to this strategy. I I've watched a lot of these videos, just want to understand what people are doing out there. And, um, it, it feels to me like an aggressive borrowing approach. Like it, it's trying to use other people's money, OPM, right? Mm-hmm. And um, just recognize that when you use other people's money, um, you're inviting risk into your life, right? You're giving up control, which is the exact opposite of financial freedom, by the way. The more of other people's money that you are using to try to achieve financial freedom, um, the, the risk is is that you get into some sort of a, a sideways scenario where life's not going like you had planned. Maybe those renters are not staying put where they belong or they're trashing properties or who, who knows. I mean, there's all kinds of horror stories with, with uh, being a landlord at times. But if things don't go the way that they, they need to, do you have the financial resources to absorb the hits? Yeah. And it is awesome that you have $20,000 in savings and investments. Um, that's, that, that's, that's great. You're building and everything, but that needs to be a larger dollar amount if you're going to suddenly have more properties where more things can start going wrong. Yeah, that's, that's, that's my temptation too here, Aaron. And again, there's a lot. We don't know all. You provide a great detail. And again, I love the idea. And we're big fans of rental real estate. And yet, uh, I, I, I might I might suggest just just looking at this, you want to get a little bit more ready. So a couple things that I'd throw at you, and if you're a fan of the Wise Money Show, maybe you've seen some of our content here. But to me, I've got my four laws of rental real estate, and that's not these oh these four little you know eh, things to consider. No, like I I've never seen successful rental real estate happen if you're violating one of these. Okay, and the first one is you need some cash, and I'd agree with Josh. I'm not sure. The, the equity that you have and the cash you have is going to be sufficient based on the risk. Okay. But it's up to you. And I guess it depends how much house you're going to buy, how much rental you're going to buy. So you got to have some cash, got to have some time. Okay. You and your wife are making good money. I don't know what other extra, extracurriculars or family or whatever you're chasing around. You got to have some, some time. You got to have some know-how. Otherwise you're, all your margins going to go to someone trying to put you know, bearings on your on your toilet or something like there. Someone's going to take you for a ride and say, well, you need this gadget here. This is like what everyone does to code or whatever. And you're just going to get taken for a ride. If, if you can't do any of the work yourself, then you're going to give up your margin and you're probably going to spend more than you than you ultimately should. And then the fourth one was or is uh, that you need to be OK with confrontation. You're going to have like, yeah, I mean, 
okay, Mr. and Mrs. Renter, uh, you've got to pay for that stain. No, that blood stain was here when I moved in. <laughs> no, it wasn't. That axe was it was in the wall. No, it wasn't, right? Uh, hey, if I pay you rent, I'm not going to be able to buy Christmas presents for the kids. I, you know, you got to be got to be tough yeah, a little bit. That's right. right? And so. So I would tell you that. And then the other thing, this is the other sort of philosophy that I've taken with rentals, and that is, yes, you've got to assume that this thing is going to be rented and occupied, but your financial life needs to be the safety net. You shouldn't get into a rental that you can't put 20% down on and that you can't afford to pull the, to make the payment on the monthly payment or cover the repairs if there's a renter that if it's vacant you've got to your financial life needs to be able to, to withstand and so you've got to budget that out to see that's exactly right and i, I think what we're kind of hinting at here is not only all those fantastic uh, questions and laws as mike said on whether or not you should even be a landlord but are you in that stage right now of truly building wealth is that the name of the game right now or is this still the laying the right foundation. Yeah. You start building too soon and you don't have a strong enough, deep enough foundation in your financial life, you may bring too much risk or too many assets and it actually can cause your life to start to crumble financially. And so I'd want to see you getting aggressive on the student loans, getting those wiped out and making sure that you have the right resources for those down payments and the greater emergency fund if you choose to go become a landlord. Fan fantastic question, though. I, I hope this helps you and the perspective helps you as you're pursuing financial freedom, financial peace, and certainly as you're pursuing a career as a CFP. That's that's fantastic. We love the idea of rental real estate. I, I mean, really do. It's just uh, the prices of houses have gone up faster than I think rents have gone up. And that's eroding what your potential return is. So anyway, that's all the time we have for today. On behalf of Josh Gregory and myself, all of us at KFG, have a great weekend. We'll see you next Saturday for the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Securities offered through Silver Oak Securities, member FINRA slash SIPC. Advisory services offered through KFG Wealth Management, LLC. Doing business as Corhorn Financial Group. KFG Wealth Management, LLC and Silver Oak Securities Incorporated companies are unaffiliated. Let's see. My guess is Josh is going to say, I'm just going to say this for the record. Here's my guess. I don't know what he's going to say. I can look at his notes. but Well, as soon as you utter it, you guarantee I'm not going to. But Bit go for it. Bitcoin. Uh, double leveraged Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Dogecoin. Short-term money. I'm just kidding. Uh, you weren't specific enough because it's double leveraged Bitcoin with a home equity line. <laughs> oh, that's right. And margin I mean, somehow. Yeah. All right. Okay. That's what you should do with your short-term money. I'm more of a stock guy, so I've got a few stock picks for you. All right. He's joking. No, I'm not. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go.